Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is August 21st, 2012, and this is episode 964 of the Survival Podcast. Kind of a, uh, you know, a unique episode. It's actually, uh, today that I'm recording it, August 18th, uh, I'm up at the permaculture design course being given at Whole Systems Design by Ben Cook. And Ben's been gracious enough to offer, uh, to do an interview with me while we're here. And that way you guys won't go a Tuesday without a show. So I'll be back tomorrow, Wednesday, in the, uh, in the home office, so to speak. And we'll just rock on from there. So I'll have Ben on just a moment before I do that though. Want to take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one is the Free State Project. I'm next door to the Free State Project right now. Just to the uh, east is uh, New Hampshire, where you can vote with your feet. You can go move to New Hampshire and be part of the Free State Project, or you can just help them out with the work that they're doing. So uh, check them out. Remember, Free State Project is not really a sponsor. I'm really more their sponsor. I've given them this slot uh, as a way of paying back to the community, uh, specifically in this case the Liberty community, that I've donated this sponsor slot to them to support the work they're doing. So even if it's not in your future to move to New Hampshire, there's maybe there's some things you can do because a fight for liberty in America is a fight for liberty in America no matter where it takes place. We're all on the same side of that fight. Check them today out. Check them out today at freestateproject.org. Next thing up is harvest eating. You're going to hear all about permaculture today, and I talk about it all the time, and growing all this great stuff. But when you have all these things that you're growing that you don't normally buy from the grocery store, what the heck do you do with all of it? I mean, some of this stuff is unique. It's different. It's things that are only really good for a day or two after they're picked, or they need to be preserved a certain way, and we need to learn to cook seasonally and locally. Well, if you go to harvest eating, Chef Keith, Chef Keith Snow will show you how to do just that. Check him out today at HarvestEating.com. Remember, check out TSPCopper.com for really cool copper barter tokens that spread the message about things like The Real Truth About Money, The Survival Podcast, Ron and Rand Paul, and other great causes. Very affordable, easy way to do just that. Uh, next up, remember, by joining the Member Support Brigade, you can help support the work we're doing at The Survival Podcast. comes out to about $0.20 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service. Remember, if you send me an email before you join, I will send you a, a special discount code to thank you for your service. And I kind of blew through the uh, housekeeping today because I'm really excited to get Ben on, who's sitting here right next to me. And with that, hey, Ben, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Thanks. Good to be here, Jack. Well, this is kind of cool because I'm actually, this is probably one of the first times I've done a face-to-face interview at the client's site. Uh, I think I did one with Paul Wheaton, but we weren't actually at his uh, at his site. We were at a, a random site we were both at. So I'm here with you at your uh, at your school and your your place of business and where you live. You've kind of integrated that all together. Uh, we're hanging out with a bunch of great people uh, doing a permaculture design course. Uh, but what I wanted to get you on today to talk about was actually like how you created what you have here. Because people like see it online, they realize all this amazing stuff, and they, I think they look at it and go, "Wow, like maybe this happened overnight, and it didn't." So, like, how long ago did you actually buy the property, and what was it like when you first got here? Yeah, I moved here about a, a, exactly nine years ago, um, almost to the day. Uh, a lot of development didn't actually start happening here for the first two or three years. I was in, I went back to graduate school. I was away for a year. Um, just busy with other things. Didn't really even, didn't, didn't, wasn't able to even see what to start doing. Um, and also had a little bit of analysis paralysis, you know, like was looking at everything so much and, and so overwhelmed by all the variables of what could happen. Um, how, how, what direction things could go in that I, I was um, in, a little bit paralyzed in terms of acting. Um, so the first thing we started doing was actually planting trees. I knew I wanted an orchard. Started digging holes down low on the property in what I knew was the sunniest location. Um, I, was, I was looking at microclimate more than anything else, which is, is important, but I was, I was ignoring some other key factors, like hydrology, for instance. So I started digging holes down there, down on the north edge below these white pines here, and uh, came back the next day to put some fruit trees in, and they were filled with water. And I knew then, okay, I didn't know a lot about trees then, but I knew that wasn't going to be very good for fruit trees. Sure. And then I think pretty quickly after that, I started realizing, well, a big hole filled with water is a lot more useful than a small hole. 
Sure. And we started to dig a pond in a different part of the property. It was also very wet. And the ponds were, you know, the properties just told us what it could do and what it wanted to do. Um, and we've started to listen over the years, and uh, it's emerged very organically. Um, it's funny because I do planning for a living, and we lay plans out on paper. But, you know, we're not fooled because we work with this piece of land that that's, a, you know, a script that goes perfectly. Um, that's a good, you know, you can identify starting points and high points of leverage and high opportunity. But really, I think we have to always acknowledge the fact that you're going to do something, you're going to learn five other things that need to happen. And it's like a choose-your-own-adventure type of situation. So uh, for us, it's been a, a very organic development. Um, do one thing, learn three others about something you were going to do, isn't going to work, and then two other things you should actually do, you weren't thinking about. Mm-hmm. So that's been, it's been this kind of iterative you know, design what I would call design build. Do something, learn something, build some more. Do some, you know, look, observe some more, get some more ideas, build some more, and that's how it's gone. And I'd say we're really between the establishment phase and now moving into like a very long-term maintenance Got you. phase. Got you. Well, that's awesome. But then I learned some about your place that I didn't know until I got here, and that is you actually bought the place with a house on it. You've made some mods to the house, improved it, but you don't live in it. You went and built a studio and now you rent out your house. How has that enabled you to basically do what you do full time? Yeah, well, renting and I, you know, I share space in the house, but I, I do rent it as well. And renting, um, has been key because it's just lightened our economic load. Um, you know, in a big way, a, a whole, you know, essential, essentially a job, um, every month, you know, getting a check from renting, um, has has allowed us to continue to pour um, more investment into the site, um, so it's been it's been key economically. To, to I mean, it's ten acres, so it's more space than one person can use well. Um, and over the years, you know, developing enough space infrastructure that we could start bringing in the energy and investment and, and money of others who want space to live and want to learn about what's going on here and be part of it, have gardens, um, be around these systems. So it's just, um, I mean, it's an economic uh, viability thing, but it's also, you know, socially, you know, um, hugely valuable. We can keep up with all everything that's going on in our zone one. We can actually keep up with all the gardens without going insane. Um, most everyone I, I work with, everyone you see around Vermont for the most part, um, on most sites have more land than they can actually work with. It's rare that I see a site where people are, their limiting factor is land, is actual mm. space. I'd say I've been on 150 site consultations. I've been, I've probably never seen an example where someone is limited by their space. Really? They're limited by their time, usually, yeah. sometimes by their skills, although those can change quickly, usually by the amount of time they have available in the day. And so often, really, the limiting factor is how can you get, how can you design your life to spend more time at home so you can do the kind of liberty creating work? You know, work of, of giving yourself more, empowering yourself more, um, developing home economic abundance systems sure. uh, for yourself and your family and your friends and your neighbors. Um, and, and actually carving out more time from your life is often the hardest part. Yeah, absolutely. And with all of this, you're doing something that I think a lot of people out there, especially in the permaculture world, would like to do. This is your living. This is your livelihood. So how did you, when you first moved here, did you initially, was that like immediately your livelihood once you had the site, or did you have a job? And how did you transition this into a, a sustainable business? I mean, you've got a, a full class out there, right, of paying students that, that are helping pay the bills and further the agenda here. Mm -hmm. So how did you get from a guy with a piece of land to a guy with a consulting business, an educational business, and transition that and make the property part of it? Yeah. Well, I think it didn't happen overnight, and it happened by starting to work with the piece of by working with the piece of land. It had happened by over three, five, seven years, nine years now, uh, through the daily work of developing the property, um, which wasn't again that intentional. You know, I bought the place actually with the intention of doing some work on it and and reselling it and not renting during graduate school in architecture, which I had started. Uh, it didn't work out that way. We started planting trees and building ponds, and the place just kind of took on a life of its own. So, you know, I think I've left a lot up to um, 
for lack of a better term, fate, you know, start putting energy into something. If it starts going, okay, yeah. let's follow that. Because um, I've tried all sorts of other things over the years that didn't start going. This one did start going. So, yeah, I think um, the property started to get a life of its own. It started to look like something cool. It started to have a bunch of yields and become a, an innovative system. We started to um, implement solutions that are... Um, uh, addressing problems that we all face and some of them are really neat are working really well and people became interested in seeing them uh, from our you know design clients to workshops you know permaculture courses so did you start out mostly with the business model was as a design consultant and then it evolved into an educational component yeah I'd say that's accurate and I knew from the beginning that if we weren't doing the work on land if we didn't have a test site if I wasn't practicing the work every day of the year at least during the growing season what value could I really bring people? Sure. You know, I could reinterpret what's in a book for people, uh, you know, learn about the species and what, what the assets are of a different plant or an animal and, and tell people about that, relay information. But that's not nearly as valuable as knowing empirically, well, I've tried this. I've worked with goats and sheep and mm -hmm. chickens and ducks, and this is how the pond works. This is what it does in the fall. This is what it does in the spring. You'll tend to have this problem with algae. You know, in this climate, very yeah. climate specific, yeah. all the things carry over. So I knew I need to invest everything I can in my in myself working on the site because that's my real education um, beyond school. It, it's got to help early on too, though. When you're dealing with you're getting your first couple of clients, you don't have this portfolio yet. And the client says, well, what have you actually done? And you can say, well, come out to my property and I'll show you it evolving over time. That had to be a good way to get those first paying clients that were willing to invest in you. Absolutely. I mean, our, our best project is probably will always be the place I live because we can do all of, we can pursue all of the possibilities we're identifying, not just the ones, you know, the client might happen to be interested in. Um, so, yeah, it's, it is our, our keystone portfolio project, if you will. helps us get a lot more work. Um, but it's the primary teacher. You know, we're constantly learning what works and what doesn't and what to do next. Awesome. And tell folks a little bit about I know it's, it's very visual for me because I'm sitting here and we're in your studio slash house right now. But give people kind of just a little rundown of, like, the three levels, what they do, and how you've adapted this living space to live in this. You know, it's a very cold climate in the winter. A little bit of like you talked about, you know, condensed version of what you talked about with the wood heating and the wood water heating and all, composting toilet, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, what we've learned is that um, a 1,500-square-foot building in this climate, very cold, you know, zone 4, zone 5 climate, um, gets about negative 25 every year, negative 20, can definitely be heated on a cord of wood, cord and a half of wood, including your water, all your domestic hot water heating. Um Without going crazy, you know, without super insulating, you know, this building uh, that, that our workshop and studio is in that I'm speaking about uh, has 8 inches of cellulose in the walls, 12 inches in the roof. That's nothing, you know, over the top. A lot of people are actually building much more insulated than that today. It has moderate passive solar gain, but for the most part, it's just heated really well with a wood stove that you can't break. It doesn't need electricity. We can bake in it, cook on this top, heats our hot water, dehydrates foods. So it's a fantastic example of multi-functions. And give people the name of that stove like you did yesterday so that they can you know, go out and try to find one. Because it's, <laughs> it's hard to find one of these. But what, what was the name of that stove? It's again? a Waterford Stanley. Waterford Stanley out of Ireland. Absolutely. And, and it's really just an airtight wood cook stove. That, I think, is the most important single piece of technology probably in my life besides maybe a chainsaw and a you know, cordless drill, a screw gun. Although that's probably more essential. I'd give those up first. Um, because it does all these crucial functions for us. Now, your hot water heating, this, I, I just thought it was awesome. So I walk in to this you know, place where you heat your hot water with a stove, and sitting there is a plain old Lozer Home Depot electric hot water heater with no, no electrical cord attached to it and a couple of valves on it sitting above your stove. So tell people how that works. It's really badass. Yeah, it's you know it's nothing new, but we really don't see this in, in, in homes. They should be in every home in a cold climate or even you know moderately cold climate, I think. It's hard to beat. It's just uh, a hot water heater that is, people are giving away every day. My neighbor was throwing it out. It was an electric hot 4,500 watt. Because the electric element shot, right? So he doesn't need it anymore, but it's still a good tank. Exactly. It still holds water, and it's an insulated water tank with fittings where you need fittings. Uh, so I said, sweet. I got a great use for it uh, for a project I've been looking into for 10 years, 15 years. I've been wanting to do this. And we hooked it up. It thermosiphons, you know, natural convection loop. 
where hot water is buoyant and it rises. So that comes out of the stove. There's a little water jacket in the back of the stove that just gets essentially one side of the firebox heats a wall of water. That rises, flows into the top of the water tank, 40 gallons. As it cools, it gets heavier and sinks. And then that continues back into the firebox, creates this natural loop with no need for a pump. So that will actually boil 40-gallon hot water tank that's not even that well insulated if I don't take a bath every day in the winter or, you know, do a lot of dishes. <laughs> so you have to have ba a bath every day in the winter or you're, you're, you boil off your, your water. Now, you have a safety valve so it can overflow. You actually had that happen one time, and you thought you blew something up, but it was just, just the bypass valve. Yeah, we have, we have put two, two pressure relief two valves Two is in. one, one is none. Yeah, figure I don't want prep, one to prep fail. permaculture, right? Absolutely. We don't want to create a rocket. <laughs> uh, like they did on Mythbusters and blow it through your beautiful beechwood floor. <laughs> and then you uh, you did a lot of the, the framing and, and the woodwork in the property from uh, from timber cut off the uh, the property. And we were talking yesterday about how you've had some younger folks come in and be like, oh, dude, you got the wood for free. And it, it wasn't free, but what you've got is wood that you had to pay to have somebody help you turn into actually timber. But it's stuff like... You just don't go buy this stuff. I mean, I'm just looking at, and I'll, I'll add some pictures of the water heater and, and the property to, uh, to like a little photo slideshow to go with this episode. But it's just gorgeous timber. So, t how did you get this resource and harness it into this this beautiful timber framed studio house? Yeah, well, we you know we walked the property and we we're thinking about building this office space uh, and identified some trees. We we knew we wanted to do a timber frame. It just makes a lot of sense in this climate. Uh, and it's it's beautiful. It's just hard to beat um, as far as the experience of being in the building to see the structure holding itself up with trees. And we don't have a lot of mature woods. You know, these are some of the biggest trees we had on the property. The forest is just old enough to yield us some structural timber. And we actually it's we did it because it's beautiful, but also because it's necessary. Mill the posts, a lot of the posts on two sides, because if we mill them on four sides, we end up like a three by three or four by four because they curve. So the reason you see the two sides, milled on two sides posts, isn't just because it's really beautiful. You get to see the, the grain and the cambium, you know, the live edge. But actually, that would be a 4x4 four four with the curve in it if we milled it on all four sides. Mm. So it's a neat example of uh, essentially maximizing a resource, getting more out of a resource if you apply a lot of skill to it. Because it's harder to build with that. It's not yeah. as easy to timber frame that and cut joinery as a four-sided timber if it's two, only flat on two sides. But then you can use a tree that otherwise wouldn't be big enough. So we identified the trees. Um, the, this building project started in the woods, not digging a hole for the foundation, but started in the forest looking for what was going to make the building. Find the skeleton first. Yeah, logged it in uh, spring. You know, ideally it should be logged in the winter, but we just didn't, we weren't going to have the capital together that quickly because uh, there's less sugars in the trees, they last longer. And uh, logged it in the late winter, early spring with horses from down the road. And uh, an expert logger who helped us with his big Belgian horses. And then we cut it all on site with a portable bandsaw mill that came up. We chainsaw milled a few of them that were too long for the mill. And uh, then we cut the joinery, raised the frame with a big party. It took about 20 people. Hand-raised it in a day and a half. Awesome. And then started working on it for the next six months. And, and those of you that are listening that haven't had a chance to look at the pictures that I'll post yet, uh, I think you'll be really impressed when you see the size of these timbers. I mean, these are man-crushing timbers if one were to fall on you. And, and to put this up in a day and a half says something about what can be done if you're not trying to uh, do conventional stick-built housing and do something really awesome, real high-performance building. Um, I'm looking at your, uh, your chimney coming up from your, your kitchen that's down on the first floor, and I see this little box there. Is that to help radiate the heat out into the floor, or is that just a... The box is just a thimble that protects the floor from the heat. Okay. You know, just a, yeah, floor thimble. So do you, you get some radiant heat off of that chimney when that, when that thing's fired up? Yeah, we, we deliberately went from insulated pipe to go through the floor uh -huh. to then uninsulated before we had to go back to insulated, insulated. to go through another floor on the roof. So okay. we could get a little more heat out gotcha. into the second floor because the wood stove's on the first floor. Yeah. So we're trying to always evenly distribute all the heat in the building. Very, very cool. And get, you know, a lot of heat goes out of the chimney. You know, you think about all the stuff you could do with the heat that's coming out the oh, roof. Oh, absolutely. Of, you know, any building, especially if a wood stove. And uh, it's a necessary evil to some extent, but get all that heat out of it you can. Yeah. You know. Well, the thing is, you're not like doing a rocket stove or something. Like, this is just a good, solid wood cook stove. And you're in Vermont, and you're still getting by on like a cord, cord and a quarter a year. I don't know how much more you could really ask for in a climate like this. I mean, this this design, uh, let's say ten latitudes south, would probably get by on half to three quarters of a cord. Yeah. 
I yeah, mean, easily, you know, I could probably get by on a quarter of a cord with this design in Arkansas. I only need the, the heating element for two months out of the year. And the, 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 out, the systems and the design that makes it perform well in cold also make it perform well in, in hot weather. So when you do get the rare 90s degree yeah. day here, it's cool in here. If yeah. I close the windows during the day, let the cool thin at night, close the windows in the morning, it starts warming up. And then open them back at night. It's staying cool in here all day. You know, I don't need to. No, I'm not close to needing air conditioning. You know, around here. Yeah, today's a very cool day. But the first day I got here it was in the 80s. It was very comfortable in here. And usually when I'm at home, even an 80 degree day, I'm cranking the AC because it's just hot. My house does not have this performance characteristic. So this is a huge thing that you can bring students in and teach them with it. But yet you can live in it. And then this has freed you up now to rent your house out. That brings another source of income. And it's it's a creative solution because there's a lot of people, like I said, that they're learning all these design components. They'd like to do this for a living. But it's not like a mass-produced company where you're going to have a new client every other day. You're going to have to have these times in between. And you're using that time to learn, develop. And then the land's actually supporting you. I mean, what would you say your portion of your diet off your land is? I think I haven't really added it up because I'm not going for, you know, 100%. Yeah, although, spitball it. Yeah, it's probably about 75% of my calories for most of the year. Um, I mean, and a lot of the other calories are just, you know, chocolate and coconuts every now and, and then. Yeah, it's a beer, <laughs> right. So so they're, they're, they're highly discretionary. You know, they're, they're, um, if I wanted to get more serious about it, I could change that number in a big way. And that's where I'm trying, a lot of people ask us about, you know, are you totally self-sufficient? It's like, well, no, of course not. I'm not that's not really the goal. But I want to be able to be very highly self-reliant um, should the need be there. And so what we're really focused on is establishing the production systems and the skill systems, know how to process a mass quantity of food should the need become um even more necessary than it is now. Now it's for my own health. Acute situation, sure. what have you. The yeah. benefits now are, are largely, you know, health and enjoyment. I mean, the food's just better than I can get at the store, even from local organic producers, which are making top quality food. It's even better when it's 10 seconds old from your own garden and soil you've remineralized and really vitalized. But I think I could move into the 90s percent uh, pretty easily. But it would mean in August and September and um, October, I'm spending a lot more time in the kitchen processing. Yeah, yeah. So it's not a production. It's a, it's a processing standpoint to get that food during those lean months into a form that will last you till you get your production back. Exactly. You, and you are doing some stuff with, with animals and a little bit with meat. Like, so you got the sheep, and we'll talk about the sheep issue in a bit. Um, but uh, the, the chickens, what, what, what kind of chickens are those, again, that you're raising out there? Because they're not the hybrid things that, like, fall over in 39 days. <laughs> right. Uh, but they are a bird designed to be a meat bird to raise out in a single season. So what, what are yeah. those birds? The ones we're raising this year is uh, kosher kings, they're called. Kosher Kings, and they, you know, I'm not sure what I feel about them. I did Cornish Giants last year, which are like, you know, almost really the industrial meat bird, or one of them. They're not known to be such good free rangers. These are really great free rangers, uh, but they don't get as big. You know, they get more of their calories. The idea is you get more of the calories off the land than you have to feed them, which, of course, is great. Yeah. Um, and for us, they, they forage like crazy. We move them around in electronetting, sometimes in metal fencing when they're smaller and they get through the electronetting. Um, but, you know, for us, I, I love chicken and locally chicken from my own site is, you know, just superior. It's fantastic. But um, it's great to have a freezer full for the whole year. We're just eating our last chicken, you know, this week from last year. But really, the, probably the most important need uh, reason we have those is for the fertility improvement they do for the property. It's just yeah. amazing how they turn, you know, almost dead land a goldenrod and fern and bramble into like a dense sward of clover and vetch and soil building plants. One thing I'm seeing here, and I think this is the challenge that a lot of people have when they try to do chickens for meat, is they're like hip on the whole thing of I'll get a flock and I'll raise up broods and then they'll be my meat birds. And they find it very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. Where you've taken the approach of there's people that do that for a living. So every year I'll buy a flock, very, very low cost per bird. I'll raise them, I'll get the productivity out of them, and then I get a meat yield at the end of the year. And I think that looks, unless you really have the resources to specialize in it, a lot more effective, and it starts to, again, realize that we're not going to be 100% self-sufficient, but you've got that relationship with that provider of poultry. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, we've moved away from trying to do every single thing here to do the things we can do really well. Um and, and and focus on those and not swamp. Because it's easy to get swamped by one part of the system that you just don't do really well or your land's not really good for or your infrastructure's not set up for. 
and that'll just that'll kill you because you could just your whole time it's like a black hole you know of time that you end up putting into it and for us sheep have, have somewhat been that black hole i mean <laughs> it, they've done a lot of good work but they yeah. they take more um than any other part of the system for the amount they provide and it's starting to become a little imbalanced yeah i mean the day i got here i was here for like 10 minutes you offered me a beer we carried some water out to the sheep and we got a sheep down with fly strike which is when these fly maggots like cover the sheep we had this little patch and we thought okay we'll take care of it a little peroxide little iodine and then we started shearing the sheep without actually having really the right tools to shear sheep with and determining this sheep was literally infested from head to ass with with millions of maggots as well at least like thousands but it looked like millions and you guys even a day later last night had like this whole sheep wool cutting party and we're trying to nurse this sheep back to health but what you told me that was interesting is you had just separated the chickens and the sheep and the minute you did that, we got this problem. And up until that point, your sheep had not dealt with this fly strike issue. Yeah. Yeah, and it's been a bad year for fly strike all over Vermont, as far as I can tell from the, the Sheep Breeders Association that I'm, I'm part of. And, um, you know, it's a nasty, nasty problem with the flies get into the sheep. Uh, skin and start breeding and eating the thing alive and we've never had the issue I mean, we're only three years in for sheep but you know I think the chickens and I, I noticed this when I, immediately when I put the chickens in with the sheep is the chickens just would gar- would you know see the sheep as a fly food source and so they would basically end up guarding the sheep from the flies standing on their backs picking off flies as they wanted to land perfect synergy you know fantastic synergy that I don't know if I'd read about it. I just it made sense to put these species together. Sure. Um, and you know we know that generally grazing animals and uh, ruminants and, and chickens have a good relationship, but uh, they they really were highly functional in a week week and a half after we pulled them away from each other because of other needs for where we needed to graze. You know, fly strike emerges as a problem. You know, probably a, a pretty good sized connection there. Yeah, definitely. And I think that like. Like, one of the things that I really realized about the synergy there looking at it is, so I buy the, the chickens as, as little pullets or whatever, or chicks in the spring. I don't know if you're buying pullets or chicks. Chicks, yeah. chicks, right? And I put them out there with the sheep once they're big enough to not be stepped on. And then they're, they're doing their thing. And by the time they're ready to, let's say, graduate to the broiler, then we've kind of gotten through our, our heavy insect infestation. We're moving into the cooler weather. Once you get one frost, the flies are just knocked back. So they kind of have a synergy in their life cycle as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So it's nice timing. I mean, that's always what we're trying to do is line everything up, like overlay the, op- the synergistic time, right? timing. Exactly. Very, very And cool. that's something that I mean, would probably take a lifetime to learn all the different, or even <laughs> most of the timings that might be happening on the property or half of them. Yeah, and I know we're learning about In a way, we're rediscovering it. Like if we would have went back in time like 500 years ago, we would have ran, about, ran across a whole bunch of people that couldn't have read, but would have thought we were idiots. They would have been like, you don't know this? You know what I mean? And it's like, so we're discovering it, so hopefully this time we're documenting it through education and books and things, and we won't lose this knowledge a second time, because well, I think we're going to really need it. Hopefully not. I think there's at least as much rediscovery as there is um, development of new, new knowledge and techniques. Certainly and, both. And, and kind of taking it to a bigger level, so you have your class going through right now, and you're, they're in their design phase of their course where they're actually doing an active design, doing a site analysis, recommendations going forward, what have you. And about half of them are looking at your site and saying, like, where, where it's at and where they would go with it. But the other half broke off and went down into this little village down here in town that's dealt with flooding over and over and over again. And, and they're looking at, like, design solutions at, like, a village or a town level, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's like a, a planning project, larger scale solutions uh exploration and assessment of, of needs and challenges and then more of a design you know site design homestead level uh analysis and, and design project that's very cool and i mean do you think there's a solution down there to their problem oh i, I certainly there's a solution to you know i think uh, a village that's in uh, you know a, in a very low part of the floodplain in an acutely flooding area in a, in a gorge essentially as we were speaking about uh but it, it's you know, this the answers might not be um, easy to undertake. It might involve moving, moving, moving a bunch of buildings, yeah, like maybe even yeah. the whole village. Uh, you know, I'm not sure, but we know, you know, we know the building. We know that will flood again. Yeah, I'm happy to hear you say that because that was my thought. Like, there's only so much I can do here, right? You're in a you're in a hole, and you have a river running through the hole, 
And right. if we get enough, and there's a billion acres of watershed behind it, and all of it's coming here, and it's very rocky, and there's 100% runoff, and you're in a hole. Yeah. So maybe the hole is not the place to put your house. Yeah, and the pattern is the pattern's clear. It floods every 50, 20, 100 years. It's flooding acutely. And there's no guarantee that won't happen just because we call it a 500-year flood. It won't happen, you know, tomorrow. And uh, I think a lot of people, it's very easy to have a lot of inaction. And that's what, unfortunately, a lot of towns in Vermont are making some changes, but not deep-level structural changes of the kind that might be necessary. Yeah. Um, out of the mindset that, well, this probably won't happen again for a long time. Yeah, but a long time is like 10 years, and a long time is not that long, and like by the time that happened, they could actually, not maybe, some of these buildings maybe they're historic, they could be physically relocated, but mm -hmm. we could actually build and then migrate, I mean, I, that's the only solution I see long term, especially there's certain spots down there, mm -hmm. there's certain spots down there that just, you know, it's a nuclear option, or... It's going to flood. Mm -hmm. You know? yeah, you got to ask yourselves, how many times do you need to be flooded out disastrously before it's just easier to rebuild or move and build in a place that's never going to happen again, You know, at least till the next ice age? Yeah. Yeah. And when that happens, we got other problems. Right. 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 So um, one thing I really noticed here was like the diversity of your students. You know, I've got like really young, I'll call them kids at 20, even though I hated it when people called me a kid at 20, you know, 20, 21-year-old kids that are real idealistic. And then I've got some older guys here that I was having a great conversation with one guy last night about the fact that we're both life members of the NRA. And we've got kind of the hippie component. We've got kind of like the, the, this kind of middle-aged, professional, conservative component. Do you notice that a lot with your classes that you have this huge cultural diversity? And even though there's some debate, everybody seems to get along okay and, and yeah. respect each other's opinions. Yeah, well, I, I think it's even more diverse this year. Um, than it was uh, last year, maybe in part because some of the folks heard about this experience through you and reaching a whole, you know, another yeah, we get side a whole of the culture. Yeah, there. absolutely. But I think that's there is that um, cultural process happening now where it's like uh, what people talking about I've seen around the Facebook channels of like the Tea Party movement and the Occupy movement have really a lot of <laughs> similar goals, even though they never talk to each other. Yeah, they hate each other, but <laughs> right. they want the same thing. Right, and right? I think there's a common bridge like that between you know, the typical survival, uh, classic survival or, or preparedness community and, and you know, the, the more hippie permaculture community. You know, the, the, um, the, there's a lot of common ground. And I think we all realize, we're starting to realize as a larger world that we have more in common than we have uh, separating us. And hopefully we'll, we'll activate that knowledge uh, quickly and in time. Now, in that vein, uh, I've been asked to speak at other permaculture courses before. But no one's ever asked me to say, like, come here and talk about preparedness. Now, you did, and you're trying to bring an aspect of preparedness, call it modern survivalism, call it what you will, to the permaculture world. Why is that important to you? Yeah, well, I think permaculture, and certainly this is personal also, is we tend to, um, as permaculturists and eco ecologists, think very long term. And, and for me, that certainly was the case. For Call it the first five to ten years I was studying and, and working in permaculture, you know, thinking about planting a nuttery for the grandkids, building soil. Not that you can't build soil quickly, but it's a long-term process to build a lot of soil. Um, you know, landforms that are intergenerational, making terraces and patties and swales and ponds. And, you know, really envisioning the Garden of Eden in 100 years. And saying, let's work towards that. But, but personally, and I think the per permaculture world still has to recognize this a little more, is there can be a lot of severe acute events that happen between now and when we're harvesting our chestnuts off our trees or, you know, grazing you know, pigs under our nuttery in, in 50 years or even 20. And, uh, you know, those could range from, you know, uh, a, a, a trucker strike, a fuel shortage to an economic, you know, bump uh, that really throws things off to an electromagnetic pulse or some big climate event, you know, a major storm, just or a, a, a confluence of a lot of events, mm -hmm. you know, might be the most likely thing. Just acute bumps, emergencies. Yeah. Not just the long emergency, but the short emergency. And I think if we don't also address the short emergency and, you know, near-term to mid-term needs, what do we do if the grid's down for a month or a year or two weeks? Then we'll compromise the success of the long-term systems because we're not addressing the shorter-term, more acute needs. Yeah, and I mean, I, like when I presented last night, one of the things that I was asked about after I was done is, well, what about land access? And one of the big problems that especially the young people here have is they have this great vision and they can't find a piece of land. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, no, no, no disrespect or anything, but you look like you're 21 years old. 
Well, when I was 21 years old, I couldn't afford to go out and buy five or ten acres of land either. I hadn't done enough wealth building in in the existing world to go out and create my own yet. And right. the thing is, let's say that you you get that clarity at 21, and you you know you're luckier than me because I didn't figure out this is what I wanted to do till I was about 30. Right. So at at 21, you get that vision, and you start trying to build and amass some level of wealth and 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 you know ability to acquire that land. But you don't live with a preparedness mindset and you have a disaster. You can get to the point where you're like, next year, I'm going to have the money. I'm going to be ready to go. I'm going to buy my property. You get economically wiped out. Mm -hmm. So the preparedness is not just about day-to-day living. But if you have a goal, whether it's a permaculture goal or any goal, if you're not living a resilient lifestyle early on, you're never going to get to the point where you can do that because something will go wrong. Sooner Mm -hmm. or later in all our lives, you know, there's the reason they have a saying called shit happens because... Shit happens. Right. You got to cover your bases as you go. You can't skip steps. You know, you can't go straight to the nuttery. I use the nuttery as an example because <laughs> this is really long term part sure. of the system without dealing with what do I do if it doesn't rain for the whole summer and my well dries up sure. you know, on the way there. Or uh, I'm, I'm dependent on electricity for the well and I don't have backup redundancy to the well and right. I can't get through the drought that I would have been able to get through. And there's a million things like that. And if, you're, if your goal is 100 years long, one thing I think we need to be thinking about is there's a lot of shit that can go wrong over 100 years. Right. And any one of those can take a 100-year project and turn it into a 500-year project or turn it into something that never happens. Right. Because you can't be sure that the next generation will pick up where you left off. Somebody, if it's not far enough developed by the time you grab your heart, clutch your chest, drop over, and die, somebody might come in with a bulldozer and flatten out what you've done if it's not real evident that it's productive. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, I, I mean, it's almost as if permaculture has covered a really long, the long-term uh, strategies, and we need now preparedness to kind of get back and cover our bases that we missed to, to deal with short-term needs. And then the preparedness community maybe off can use permaculture as, as the long haul, uh, a, a reference point in how to do some uh, optimization for the long haul. Well, it's definitely one of the things that main, you know mainly attracted me early on because I came into touch real fast with okay, well, I have some financial resources now, and I can store a lot of food, but I only have so much space. And I don't want to buy another house for my food, right? You know, It's a ridiculous level of redundancy at some point of stuff that you know is designed to last 25 years. We need production into the system, and we need to think long-term. So it's like these two worlds. We've got this really short-term thinking world out here, and the survivalist-minded person that comes in without the broader education initially is thinking about covering the basis for that short-term world, mm. quickly comes into touch with the fact that, well, if it stays bad for a long time, i got to cover this long-term base. And then we got this permaculture world that's thinking it's such a long-term that they lose sight of the short-term acute critical needs. And if we can put those two together, I feel like we have something really, really powerful. Yeah, that's quite a game plan then. Yeah, and you're writing a book on this, aren't you? I am, I am, yeah. In some ways, it's been I've been writing it for, I'm pulling stuff out of writings I've done for the last 10 years, even my kind of my thesis in, in college. But i uh, really been working hard for the last year, and it'll be out in the spring, um, focused on resiliency and regeneration. You know, what I think of is the, is the, the shorter term, midterm, and regeneration, which in a large part, permaculture uh, is a fantastic tool towards the longer term, you know, let's let's design and make, you know, the Garden of Eden type of situation, garden, you know, planet Earth, turn it into a really um, beautiful, productive, abundant place. So and it, we're really just going to be reporting on the uh, challenges and, and, and uh, solutions we've learned here directly. You know, I'm researching almost nothing for the book. I'm reporting from my personal experience. Sure. So the research is practical research versus academic research. Yeah. Yeah. It's only it's only direct Direct accounts, you know, yeah. uh, primary source research Which from my own experience. Which is great because it's, you know, when they got, a lot of times when people compile data, sometimes they shape data is the, you know, nice way of saying why, right? So you're not shaping data. You have direct direct feedback data here to work with. But you're actually bringing a little bit of the, the kind of preparedness mentality into your writing, right? Uh, yeah, definitely. It, it's, you know, it's overlaid throughout and there'll be a section on it as well. Dealing with, I think I've got nine different scenarios that are worth thinking about. You know, from a, a climate event to a nuclear event, which is, you know, the least fun thing to talk about. Yeah. I, I didn't hated writing that section, but, <laughs> you know, it's important to at least think about it as rational people because it's uh, it's an, uh, too too much of a possibility. Um, 
and a few a handful of other scenarios that are, are looked at, you know, briefly. There's books on all of those, and I, I tell people look into those. But, yeah. um, you know, how I'm personally assessing, you know, those scenarios and working in s- solutions towards dealing with those scenarios in my daily life. And then most of it is on, you know, the, the food systems, the energy infrastructure systems, building systems, water systems uh, that we're working with on the 10 acres here. When when you look at from the preparedness mindset, right, and as a full time permaculture consultant and teacher, and you say you look at the long term threats, what is your biggest concern about a, a short term re- realized long term threat to to our society? Mm. Well, I I tend to think it's uh, the two, uh, you know, atomic level, atom level things, genetic screwing around with the genes of uh, living organisms and um, nuclear, you know, atomic materials, both of which, you know, I think Einstein, I think it was said something like, you know, stay out of the atom, <laughs> you know, don't mess around in there. And I, I kind of see those as, as, as parallel challenges, you know, the kinds of things that um, companies like Monsanto are doing and, and then, uh, you know, companies like, like nuclear energy companies. And, um, you know, it's a war technology. I mean, uh, you know, nuclear Nuclear weapons are a powerful way to kill a lot of people. And we, you know, developed that technology in World War II, and now we have it around and we're make figure out, oh, this is a great way to make electricity, we think. Yeah, we're and, using weapons-grade uh, material. It's really not, but it is, right? So somebody's going to call me on it if I'm not technically accurate. But we're using weapons-based technology mm-hmm. to boil water. Yep. In the end, that's what we're doing. And, and the crazy thing is there is nuclear technology that's far safer, that's not weapons-based technology, where if a reactor fails, it just shuts off. Mm-hmm. Where we have reactors now, if they fail, they cook off. Yeah. But it was because they had the technology and because they wanted to advance the weapons technology, if we're honest about it. And now we have these plants everywhere. And to me, Fukushima got overblown about the threat that we have in the United States. Mm-hmm. But it certainly revealed the threat that we have in the United States. Because we have, if you want to build a nuclear power plant, you need a source of water. So they're on the coast or major river systems, which gives us the potential for tsunami and flood everywhere that we have a freaking nuclear plant. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, that's a bigger risk. I, I don't live in fear like we did in the 70s mm-hmm. of, you know, launch, you know, war games, launch all the missiles, right? right. right? Because I think that humanity's kind of figured out that if we do that, they're going to mutually assured destruction actually work, yeah. you know? Right. Um, not that they couldn't have, but it's, it's, it's up there with the asteroid theory. Mm-hmm. But a plant cooking off here in the United States, that's not out of the realm of possibility at all. No, I mean, and unfortunately, it's actually probably guaranteed. I mean, there's 104 nuclear power plants. Uh, I, I think, you know, studies have been shown that most of them have been leaking at least what we call low-grade radioactive materials since they were built. You know, tritium, a lot of these plants have been leaking tritium, you know, the whole time. Uh, the one we have in Vermont is... is uh, had many, many leaks over its life cycle, and now it's extended to run uh, 20 years or more beyond its desi- original design lifespan <laughs> because we don't have a different plan. Yeah. I and mean, we're not conserving electricity in a serious way. Um, so, you know, it, it's scary stuff. I don't go around worrying about it, but it's out there, and it's, you know, these the, the materials are all around us. And as someone put it, you know, we already have the best nuclear reactor we could possibly need. It's 93 million miles away. Yeah. It's called the sun. It yeah. works really, really well. Really let's, well. Let's try to work off of that. Um, and, you know, it's a technology, as someone else put it, you know, that demands perfection. You know, if we mess up, the mistakes are, are, are huge and global. I have a friend in northern Sweden, and, and he, when he hunts, they still have to measure their reindeer for radioactivity from Chernobyl, which is oh, thousands wow. of miles away. Yeah. You know, so it's just like people are imperfect. We screw up. Yeah. So let's, let's stick with the things. That screwing up doesn't, you know, cause that kind of um, level of, of challenge for people for thousands of years. But that, that's where we're really, really focused in the last few years on what we call super medicinals and just health enhancement. Sure. You know, what people are starting to realize around soil, people are, other folks are starting to extrapolate into the, to the organism level. And, you know, if it's not in the soil, it's not in our foods, we can have a carrot that looks like this and has almost nothing in it. We have carrot that's grown in vitalized soil, the remineralized soil, that has 100 times the nutrients in it. And it might even not look as pretty in a supermarket shelf, but it's a hell of a lot better quality food. Um, now, the, the, we talked a little bit about the energy thing there, but unlike a lot of people in the permaculture movement, you're not like everything in modern energy is evil and you shouldn't even burn a candle if it was not made with you know soy wax <laughs> or whatever. So you'll use diesel, you'll use gasoline, you'll use propane. But like last night what I said is that 
I don't think future generations will be so angry with us for burning the fuel. They'll be burnt. They'll be angry for what us what we burnt the fuel to do. Right. That we squandered a resource that had the potential to build long term infrastructure. So is that kind of the same way you're looking at things? Absolutely. I mean, I think of it as oil intervention is the work we have to do. You know, I got here for the first few years. I still had the kind of college idealistic mindset of we'll do this all by hand with no inputs. Well, a that's theoretical. There's always inputs, but I could also take a hundred years to you know terraform and you know, earthwork the site, build the infrastructure, the right, the ponds, the paddies, or I could set up these systems, you know, in the next five years with a little bit of fuel that's going to be used. It's going to be burned up by the military or by a guy making an extra trip to the grocery store that, you know, didn't need to happen or whatever it is, or someone in his, you know, truck that he could have driven a, ridden a bicycle instead. It, it, I think it's kind of a use it or lose it period of time we're at. The materials are here. They're abundant. They're still really cheap. You know, we have the opportunity of a small window to use this intense, energy-rich liquid to establish a society and home systems that then can perpetually exist without a need for those off-site inputs. And it's either use that to do it, or your kids might be digging and making terraces by hand, which yeah. would take, you know, maybe a lifetime of digging. Yeah, and it, I mean, I think that's exactly where we're at. And, you know, we were talking about solar last night, too, and I'm a little more optimistic than Stephen Harris. Stephen Harris is like, solar sucks, it's not going to work, it's never going to work, it can't be mm-hmm. done. My caveat is solar doesn't suck, it, 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 it works, but it only works, it's almost at, at the best you're going to get is a net even break on fossil fuels right now because of longevity. Mm-hmm. But then I caveat that with yet, because I believe that we can innovate these things and do them better, mm-hmm. and I think if we had been doing it for 50 years, we'd already be there. But to me... The missing link in solar right now is longevity of performance. We've got a lot of efficiency. I want more. I'm sure we'll get more. But if we built a system that lasted 100 years instead of 25, then it doesn't matter if it's net even at 25 because you got 75 years more use out of it mm-hmm. and 75 more years to figure out how to make it even better for the next generation of equipment. But the challenge is getting industry to see the opportunity in building a product that lasts even 50 years. And, and to me, it's huge because count rooftops. Right, count rooftops, count windows, count count all the things that we could be solarizing, and you start to realize it doesn't matter to industry if it lasts longer than what they're used to. That's designed for obsolescence, mm-hmm. because by the time you fill the demand, you'll have you'll have profited so well from it. You can go do something else, you know. Right. And I mean, I think that's where we need to be looking, but. Steering industry there is difficult. Yeah. And solar, I've also noticed solar, especially, you know, photovoltaics and solar hot water to some extent to be oftentimes um, distracting for folks. We'll have clients who the first order of business is where do I put my green home and where do I put my solar panels? And that's, you know, uh, homestead security or that's resilience. Yeah. It's like, well, you want to start with putting the trees, food trees in the ground, yeah. establishing your vegetable garden, yeah. building your soil fertility. Because that, no matter how many, how much money you throw at that, you can throw a billion dollars at your site. You're not going to grow a tree really any faster than if you just take care of it well. Correct. And solar, that's why a lot of people come out here and they're like, oh, I don't see like solar arrays everywhere. Well, A, you do. They're called plants. But, <laughs> and they work really well. But, but B, the, the solar electric arrays are easy. They can go in in two days. Yeah. It's just called money. Yeah. You know, hire it out or, or bring buy some panels and put them up. Trees take time. Yeah. Living systems take time. And I look at it this way. If you came in here today and started, right, and you started putting the trees in for 10 years, and 10 years from now you put the solar panel on, the solar panel, solar system you put in 10 years from now will cost less and do more than the one you'll put in today. Sure. If you do the solar panels first and plant your trees in 10 years, you've lost 10 years of growth. So the trees will be stronger in a decade. The solar system will be stronger in a decade. And I can see supporting the industry and all, but basically my call to the industry is make me a better product. Mm-hmm. Make me a more efficient, better product. And the other le- weak link there right now is the batteries. right? So we need a longer life battery and a more efficient panel. But I do think we'll get there. But I agree with you. It's a distraction because I look at your house and go, okay, well, you put in, what, you got that stove used for like 700 bucks and put yeah. a few hundred dollars into some mods. And this does all your heating. And that would be a huge grid draw that solar would never replace. So it's not that we don't do solar eventually, but, my God, if you don't have limited capital like everybody about the last name Gates does, right, do this first. It's more effective. Right. Well, yeah, how far do you get for a buck? You know, it's in 
building, efficient building systems, effectability systems, living systems. It's not in photovoltaics just yet. Not that there's not great applications. And I've got, you know, so 30-watt solar panel to charge our electric fence. That's a great use of a solar panel. It's Works an excellent great. use. Fantastic. And I, I can pull that up to the house and charge a very small battery system. But certainly the batteries, we have no, very, no accessible home-scale system of storing electrons very well. And lead-acid batteries are are really poor technology. And then just to even recycle them creates a lot of waste. So oh, yeah. it's, it's like they say, the electric car. It's not that they don't have emissions. How long is the tailpipe? Right. The tailpipe goes all the way back to the factory in Japan where they manufacture it and all the way back to the cogeneration plant that runs the electricity at your outlet that you plug your electric car into. And again, I'm not down on these technologies. I'm just saying that they're, they're in the middle of their life cycle. They're not mature yet. Mm-hmm. And I think that... Consumers really need to demand more, and, and I think the demand's there, but it's not vocalized. You mm-hmm. know, yeah, and electricity is not, you know, truly a basic need. We get distracted and tr- go to the great lengths that people spend, you know, so much money on making some electrons. It's like that's nice. Electron, you know, le- electricity is helpful at the homestead. Don't get me wrong. And you could surgically apply it to LED lights, you know, to a laptop, to cordless charging, cordless drills, bat- you know, other tools. That's fantastic. Um, but it's not food. You can't eat it. You know, it's not warmth. It does and not close. we didn't have it 200 yeah. years ago and people lived, right? Yeah. Where if, if every time in history that food went away, people immediately started to die. Not, not eventually, but immediately started. Even when they were still some food, but not enough for nutritional requirement, mm-hmm. with deficiencies, disease takeover. Once disease takeover, disease spread. Once that happens, there's less people to farm. Now, and it's been these, these spirals. The Black Death mm-hmm. is a perfect example about that. It wasn't the bubonic plague was so lethal, but it infected the food supply and the people, disrupted the labor force, disrupted society, mm. disrupted the food channel, and then the whole thing was holistically linked. Whether you want to admit that things are holistically linked or not, they are. And once one breaks, you start to see all the, the attachments. So, you know, if somebody gets the plague, it's not like a death sentence everybody never went near them. But in, in, you know, the 1300s, if somebody got the plague in the middle of a village and it began to spread through the food supply... And, and, and hit those weak agrarian links, all of a sudden we had a catastrophic effect, and depending on who you listen to, lost 20 to to, to 40% of the world's population mm-hmm. from a single event. Wow. You know, and I mean, that's that's really, it should be humbling is what it should be for yeah. us. We yeah. should realize that, like, we're not as smart as we think we are, you know, that, you know, one one bad crop of, of GMO corn, right? And this year there's going to be a huge corn shortage. You know, the farm, you said, it was it you that told me up here, somebody said that, some farmers feeding his cows candy? No, I didn't know that. There was someone huh. here that told me there was this farmer somewhere that because the corn prices are going so high, found like this like you know, like junk candy, like stuff that was being thrown away or something he bought for next to nothing, and he's feeding his cattle candy and he's basically like, It's corn syrup. It's it's <laughs> it's kids' calories. It'll get them by until I can afford more feed. Wow. You know, and it's just like and, and my my response to that was it's actually not cheaper. We just paid for it already. Right. We paid right. for it in subsidies on the corn for the syrup that went in the candy and uh, so we're we're in a place like now where things can go a variety of ways, mm-hmm. but people doing what you do and I think are, are enabling people to deal with you know, in the permaculture movement it's called transition. In in my world I call it a shift of society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, transition is a great term because it has a certain inevitability to it. It's always happened. It always will. We're not probably an exception to the flow of history that goes back for thousands of years. Yeah, I call it a shift because I'm an entrepreneur, and I can see a T-shirt that says, Shifts happen. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, they do. And you might as well... uh, you know, maximize your your own life approach to uh, to getting the most value out of those shifts because there's not much else that's guaranteed. So if you were talking to somebody and they said to you, this is what I want for my future, I want a business in permaculture, what would your advice to them be? Well, I'd say there's a lot of approaches to, to, to making that happen, but the first one um, that comes to mind is to start practicing, to start doing permaculture. To start, um, start actually getting experience. You know, there's so much written. There's so much being talked about. You can go to endless, um, you know, seminars on the subject and take, you know, course after course. And those are all great if they help inform your approach to working with land or, or other systems. But like anything, there's no substitute for experience. So um, usually I tell people, find access to land. Work on someone's project. Get land yourself if you can. Get get a group together so you can get land if you, you can't afford it, you know, by yourself. 
um, or volunteer or intern or, you know, find someone with an inspiring project and knock on their door and figure out a way to be useful to them uh, until they, you know, let you uh, participate so you can start getting firsthand direct experience at teaching yourself, you know, through working with, with land and, and infrastructure systems. You know, and it's something I should have brought up last night with these young folks here, because there's some people here that are really young. And that, like, that just, just fires me up to see these young people doing this. Because when I was 20, 21, 22, I was chasing girls in a bar. <laughs> I mean, and, and I didn't know how to spell permaculture and didn't know the word existed, right? <laughs> so seeing this here is awesome. But what I actually should have told the one young person that asked me about land access last night was you are more free now than you will ever be at any time in your life. You really are. You have complete lifestyle freedom. Mm. Go be a woofer for a year or two. I mean, if, you, if access to land is the issue, go out there and do it. Find yourself a part-time job. A lot of these places you can work 20 hours a week on the farm. Find a part-time job. Live in the little tent or barn or whatever they give you and put money away for two or three years. Mm -hmm. And then come back with knowledge and resources. I think there's – and there's access everywhere. You you live in a, a suburban area that's kind of downturn. I'm guaranteed you start talking to town council members. There's a place for a community garden. They need somebody to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think there's so many opportunities like that for people. And I don't think people really should start a permaculture business path with the end in mind because – they're going to learn so much along the way. They might discover that, like, they have a talent for earthworks. Like, just, like, they can look at land. And I, that's where I feel like my big talent lies. I can look at a land and I can see contour lines from uh, 200, 300 yards out. And I'm going, there's that, there's that. And that person might go into more of an earth sculpting business mm -hmm. where they do what Lawton was talking about when he was on the show, where they go find a tract of land, put the bones on the landscape, and then sell the land off to somebody that wants to develop it further. Mm -hmm. That's an ideal partnership with somebody like you mm -hmm. because you have a client database and clients know other clients. and So I think there's tremendous synergy, and I think that we're seeing, like today, we look at permaculture and go, well, so much work's been done since the 70s, and it's so much bigger than it was in you know, 1980, 1985 even, that we think it's mature. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's mature. I think it's a baby. It's an infant. I think it's still an embryo, honestly. I was just writing just the draft of the last part of my book, and it's really what I'm focusing on is we're just at the beginning of the beginning. We'll look back at this time 100 years from now and realize we're just starting the kind of presence. It's like pre-Genesis, you know? Yeah. We're, we're just starting to see the, the clues of how to do things in really effective ways for the long, you know, in, in truly effective ways uh, that are effective for life as a whole. Well, awesome stuff, Ben. Again, thank you for having me up here, and thanks for taking time out of teaching your course to be on the show with us today. And I, I know I said it before, but anytime you have anything to say to the audience, just pick up the phone, send me an email, we'll have you back on. Thank you. Thanks for being up here. It's fantastic. Yeah. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Ben Cook, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.